Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we pray now as we do each week that you would be here with us in this place. And we trust as always that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Besides all of this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. This is one of those readings, isn't it? Hey. A quirk of the Anglican liturgy is that we have these reader and congregation calls and responses before and after the gospel lesson because we want to set the stories about Jesus apart. We want to make them special in some way. After all, these are readings from the gospels, from the good news about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so before the reading, I say the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to whoever, in this case, Luke. And you all say, glory to you, Lord Christ. And then after the reading, I say, the gospel of the Lord. And you say, praise to you, Lord Christ, which is fine. Except for those five or six Sundays a year when we've just gotten done reading about, oh, I don't know, a rich man being in eternal torment. So much so that he's begging for just a single drop of water. And not only is he told that no, he can't have any of that water he needs so badly. But no, no one's going to go back and warn his family about the fate that awaits them either. Sorry, bud. It's the everlasting fire for you and probably for your family too. The gospel of the Lord. <laughs> Praise to you, Lord Christ. When it's hard to find good news in the reading, it feels really weird to praise God for it at the end. And of course, that's not the only weird thing going on this week. The astute among you will also notice that we just read this reading, Lazarus and the rich man in heaven and hell, two weeks ago. I took the opportunity then to preach on Paul's first letter to Timothy, living into an old preacher's joke about how to handle a difficult gospel lesson which is to preach on the epistle. <laughs> Long story short, though, I wanted to come back to this reading, not only because I didn't want you all to think that I was avoiding it, but because there is, in fact, good news here. And it is, in fact, good news for sinners like you and me. It is, in fact, the gospel of the Lord. So where to begin with Lazarus and the rich man? <laughs> Seems like perhaps as good a place to begin as any as with, is with the facts, not the facts of what happens to Lazarus or what happens to the rich man, although we'll get to those in a second. I mean the bald facts about heaven and hell. In telling this parable, Jesus is making a simple truth claim that heaven and hell are real. They exist. 
The soul is eternal, and after life on this earth is over, we dwell either in heaven with God or in, as some theologians have gruesomely called it, quote, eternal conscious torment. Now, of course, if that's true, if you were to actually believe that heaven and hell are real, it would necessarily change the way you think about everything, wouldn't it? If heaven and hell are actually real, it becomes of paramount importance to understand how we end up in one or the other. If there's a great chasm fixed between comfort and torment, and there's no way from one side to the other, we want to make darn sure we're on the right side. And so we come, therefore, to the narrative of Jesus' parable. It's a simple story. Lazarus is a profoundly poor man, covered in sores, who lies outside the gate of a rich man's house. Even as Lazarus is languishing outside, the rich man inside dresses in fine linen and feasts sumptuously every day. But then both men die and their situations are reversed. Lazarus is in heaven with Abraham, having been carried there by angels, and is described as comforted. Now this word, I think, comforted, comfort, comfortable, has lost much of its meaning for us today, hasn't it? We are so comfortable. And so when we describe something as comfortable, we normally mean that it was fine, but it wasn't great. As in, how was that hotel room? Comfortable. You know that person did not have a resort experience. Comfortable has come for us to mean tolerable. But for Lazarus, comfort was something he had never known. When he was lying on the ground outside the rich man's house, dogs would come to lick his sores. But not now. Now, Lazarus, with Abraham, is comforted and comfortable. And just the opposite is true of the rich man. Having been comfortable all his life, this man is now uncomfortable, to put it mildly. He is suffering. He is tormented. He would give anything for just the tip of a finger dipped in cool water. He is Afflicted. Worst of all, there's nothing that can be done. So, what is the lesson for us in this? Is it that being rich is bad? That poverty is more righteous than wealth? Well, you'll certainly hear this parable sometimes preached in that way that poverty is, by definition, a holier state of affairs than wealth. After all, Jesus did say that it is more difficult for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. So get rid of your wealth. Is that the message here? Well, there's an old saying about preaching that I'm sure I've shared with you before, that preaching is supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And we see the same juxtaposition here in the story, don't we? Lazarus was afflicted in life and is now comfortable. The rich man was comfortable in life and is now afflicted. 
So, are we to consider where we fall on a scale from Lazarus at the bottom to this rich man at the top and see whether we should be comforted by this story or afflicted? And the closer we are to Lazarus, the more comforted we can be. And the closer we are to the rich man, the more afflicted. Well, if we did that, I think that we would find that as almost universally upper-class Westerners, we'd find ourselves pretty close to the top of that scale. And that should trouble your conscience. This story should make you sweat. But you know what? Having a troubled conscience is for a time okay. It's good to be aware of your sin, to think about how often you walk past Lazarus in your own life. And don't do anything about him. It's good to think on these things and to repent of them. This is good. But this story is about more than finding yourself on the economic spectrum and trying to be better toward those lower on the totem pole than yourself. Because who is there in heaven with Lazarus? It's Abraham. The richest patriarch in all of the Old Testament. In Genesis 13, 2, it says that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And later, one of Abraham's servants, Abraham's servants, says of him, The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. So Abraham himself is probably more like the rich man than we are. And he's certainly more like the rich man than he is like Lazarus. He is rich with servants and no dogs licking Abraham's sores ever, not one time. And yet, there they are, Abraham and Lazarus, comforted together comfortable together. So is there a comforting word for those of us who are afflicted by this story, who have a troubled conscience, who might think, gosh, I myself have more in common with that rich man than I'd really like to admit. People for whom this story starts a little nervous sweat and a little tugging at the collar. Yes, there is good news for us. And to begin to bring it out, I want to look at what Jesus says immediately before he tells this story. He's making a point to the Pharisees to whom he is speaking. He doesn't want them to misunderstand what he means. And Luke, who is writing about all of this, underlines it in a sense because he doesn't want us to misunderstand what Jesus means. This is Luke 16, verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So this 
is what Jesus' story is really about. A rich man trusting his riches. And a poor man trusting in God. Jesus calls the Pharisees to whom he is speaking, these lovers of money, according to Luke, he calls them those who justify themselves. This rich man sought to justify himself by his wealth. I'm rich, therefore I'm okay. I don't need to be saved. I have everything I need. And we can all do this no matter where we fall on the economic Spectrum, no matter how much we have in the bank. I'm popular, someone else might say. I have everything I need. I don't need to be saved. I have 10,000 followers on Instagram. I'm not afflicted. People think I'm beautiful. I don't need to be saved. And despite the fact that Abraham could have said all these things about himself, as the richest patriarch, as the father of the nation of Israel, that's not how Abraham was justified. That's not what put him on the comfortable side of the great chasm next to Lazarus. Listen to Paul writing about Abraham's justification, his salvation in Romans 4. What then shall we say, says Paul, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, by something he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The rich man sought to justify himself, while Abraham believed in him who justifies the ungodly. So, it is more difficult For a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Yes, the door to heaven is incredibly narrow. It is one man wide. The man, Jesus Christ, who justifies the ungodly. And this is the good news for us. And why I can say that I have good news for you no matter where you are on the scale from Lazarus to Abraham. That justifier of the ungodly, Jesus Christ, died and was raised to justify you. The announcement that heaven and hell are real should afflict all of us. And it does. But there is another announcement. Jesus has come. And faith in his finished work for you is counted as righteousness. If you could work for righteousness, either by accumulating wealth or getting rid of it, it wouldn't be a gift, and you'd never be sure that you'd done enough. But we believe in him who justifies the ungodly, 
And this faith is counted as righteousness. The ungodly, you and me, made godly on account of Christ. These are comfortable words for your afflicted soul. That drop of cool water that reminds you which side of the chasm you are on. We remind ourselves every single week. We sinners have an advocate with the Father. You have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, He is the propitiation, the perfect offering for your sins. And not for yours only, but also for mine. And for the sins of the whole world, from Lazarus to Abraham. Trust in Him, and you are comforted forever. Amen.